God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from City Light Church in Lincoln. Here's Pastor Austin Edwards. What if the very things we thought were pleasing to God weren't? We would probably want to go, well, what is pleasing to God? And I don't I want to stop wasting my time, you know? So that's my hope this morning as we see from David what uh, is pleasing to God, what he does delight in, that we would orient our lives around that and go, I'm done giving him things that he doesn't like that I thought he liked. And I want to reorient and joyfully lavish uh, everything I have that, he, that I know he loves and I know he delights in and to rightly worship him. So that's kind of the hope as we uh, unpack these verses together. No, God, what do you actually Enjoy. Psalm 51, verses 16 through 19 is where we'll be, but 16 says this For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. So the first thing he says, hey, here's the first thing that God is not delighting in sacrifice. And uh, the word delight means to enjoy, uh, to want, or to desire. It's actually the same word is used in Esther chapter 2 when it says the king delighted in, um, in uh, Esther and he summoned her by name. So it's this idea of I want this. Uh, my daughter Eden is two and a half years old and she delights in steak, which clearly as a dad is not good for my budget or the meal I'm making for myself because she's always begging for it or for Kristen's. And so I'm like, most kids like hot dogs. Why don't you like them? You know, or chicken nuggets or mac and cheese. And she's like, I just want steak, you know? And so sometimes we'll cook a burger and we'll cut it into like little steak strips. Like that looks like it. And we're like, here's steak. And she eats it and she spits it out. She's like, this is not steak. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, but Eden delights in steak, right? That's what she, she doesn't want anything else. And this is what David is saying. He's saying, you'll spit out sacrifices like Eden spits out meatloaf. You know, it's just not, it's not it. You don't, you don't want this. Um, and then he goes on and he says in verse 16, he continues, and he says, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. So second gift that God's not interested in is this burnt offering. And the word pleased means to accept or to take and so, or receive. So in Genesis chapter 33, Esau and Jacob, the two brothers, they meet again. And the last time they were together, Jacob had tricked Esau and basically stolen his blessing and all this stuff. So it's like, it's probably going to brother brawl. You know, it's like not going to be good. But Esau is gracious to him. And Jacob says in Genesis 33, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. It's the same exact Hebrew word for pleased. You've been pleased in me. So it's this idea of receiving or accepting. Uh, The undisputed best restaurant in Nebraska is Max Drive-In in McCook, Nebraska, just so we're all clear on that. On that, It's amazing. Every time I go back there, yeah, 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 thank you. And so um, if you guys don't know, you haven't tried it yet. But the kind of infamous thing about Max is they, for the longest time, didn't accept credit cards. And so you'd walk in, you're like, I want to get a burger and some chicken tenders and some ra- whatever, you know, and they're like, um, yep, it'll be, you know, whatever. And then you pull out your card. Oh, we don't accept card. And, you're, and it, the idea is they're like, it doesn't matter if you want to buy the whole menu. It doesn't matter if you have a $15,000 credit limit, we cannot take it. We will only be pleased with cash or check. And for a 20-year-old, cash and check feel like we don't even know what those are. No one, you know, who's written a, you know, a check in their 20s and who carries cash? It's like, can you do Venmo or Cash App or Apple Pay? You know, I don't know what those are. Um, but anyways, and so that's the idea of what David's saying. Burnt offerings are useless to you. They're, they're, it, burnt offerings, are, it doesn't matter how many you offer, how often you offer them or whatever. The burnt offerings are as useful to you to God as a credit card is at Max Driving. You get what I'm saying? He'll only be pleased. He'll only accept this certain thing. Now, I'm assuming when I tell you guys that, you're not like, oh, wow, that's so profound. That's life. My life's changed because of knowing that. But here's why that's entirely earth shattering to them. And I think it should be to you. Burn offerings and sacrifices are all people know 
what to give God in this culture, in this context. Like, like if they're like, hey, what's, what's your relationship with God like? They're like, oh, I sacrifice. I make burnt offerings. Really? Okay, cool. And then, but this verse 16, David says, you don't want that anymore. And they're going, well, what am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do now? Like, this is all I've known to give them, right? That's the idea. And so common day, it, this verse would literally be like God saying, I don't, I don't delight in church gatherings like this. I don't accept prayers or Bible reading or caring for orphans or get scattering in the week through a city group. Like, we're like, wait, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't delight in your tithes and offerings. We'd be like, this is, this is how we know how to interact with you. And, and you're taking, you say so you don't delight in all that? What do, you, what do you mean? Like, that's what's happening in verse 16. It's absolutely earth shattering. And so I want to ask a couple questions. We'll ask three of them to kind of help unpack this passage. But the first one is, why not? Like, why doesn't God want sacrifices or accept burnt offerings? So this is big, right? So it's the first question. Um, and here's what's odd about this statement of 16 is that God created sacrifices. Like it was his idea, not man's. And so it was on his volition and his will. In fact, in Leviticus, God details out the sacrificial system. If you sin this way, here's how to, you know, this is the burnt offering or here's the sacrifice and it's guilt offerings and all this stuff. And you're going, you created it. And it's like, you gave us the idea. You gave us the birthday list and we just filled it out. The Amazon wish list or, list or registry or whatever. And we got you the gifts that you said you wanted. And yet, and the idea of sacrifice, by the way, is that uh, sin uh, requires death and, and, and death comes with blood, right? The life's in the blood. And so they would sacrifice an animal by a means to say, they are actually taking on my sin. They're paying for my sin or I'm paying because I'm getting the animal and giving the animal. But that's the idea is that the blood needs to be shed and death needs to be uh, experienced in order to forgive sin. That's the whole idea around the sacrificial system. And yet God says over and over and over again, I wish I had time to lay out all the verses where God's like, I don't delight in sacrifices. I don't want birth offerings. Why? I think there's three reasons. Number one, the reason he doesn't want sacrifices is because they are abusing, they were abusing sacrifices as cheap freedom to keep on sinning. In Isaiah chapter 1, 1, God says, what to me, uh, one eleven? what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? He's saying, I have so many of them. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat and well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. In verse 13, he says, bring no more vain offerings. I cannot endure iniquity. In verse 15, he says, though you make many prayers, I won't listen. Your hands are full of blood. So what he's saying is, you're giving me so many sacrifices. I don't want sacrifices. I want changed hearts that aren't continuing to need sacrifices and your hands are full of blood, but there's so much iniquity. You keep sacrificing, but you keep sinning. Like it's this whole cycle. And so tell me if this sounds familiar, this pattern. Oops, I sinned. I need to go sacrifice. I sacrificed. Now I feel better. Oops, I sinned, I need to sacrifice, I sacrificed, now I feel better. Or, I'm really tempted to sin, should I do it? Well, if I do, I know God will forgive me if I make a sacrifice. Hence, let me sin, right? Do you, find, you ever find yourself doing that where you, you sin because you know God's gonna forgive you? It's like, like so many people that aren't believers or aren't Christians are kind of like, that, there's, a, there's a gap in Christianity and the fact that you believe that God will forgive you no matter what. So what's preventing you from keep on sinning, you know? Like that's the idea. And that's the reason God doesn't delight in sacrifices is people are just like, oh, well, I can sin because I'm just gonna go tomorrow and I'm gonna bring a goat or, a, or a whatever it is. Like I'm just gonna, you know, this is freedom to sin. Or in our common day, you know what sacrifice would be for us today is apathetic confession. 
That's our common day sacrifice. You know, I sin, I'll confess to God, I'll act like I feel bad about it. I really don't. And I really don't plan on changing, but I'll kind of seem like I do. And then I'm just going to go do it again. It's the idea, it's the difference between repeating and repenting. You know, I'm just going to keep doing this thing, but I'll confess it versus I'm actually going to change. And I think that's why God's saying, I don't want sacrifice. I want justice. I want righteousness. Like I want you to actually internalize what's happening through sacrifice and that you would change and not want to continue to need to sacrifice. Romans 6, 1 puts it this way. By the way, one of my favorite verses right before this is Romans 5, 20. That says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And then, so it's like, you can keep sinning, grace can abound. And then Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, so should we sin so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin keep living in it? So that's the first reason. The second reason I think he doesn't delight in sacrifices is because the sacrifices weren't sacrifices. Uh, in 2 Samuel 24, David is kind of commissioned by God to go build an altar. And so he needs to find land to build the altar on. And he finds this space. And the guy basically goes, if you're doing that for the Lord, just have it for free. And David goes, no, 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 no. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, he says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Okay. He's saying, I want my sacrifice to be a sacrifice. One of the most intriguing stories in the Bible to me is of Cain and Abel, the first two brothers, right? Adam and Eve's sons. And uh, they both offer gifts to God. And uh, Cain uh, offers fruit from the ground. That's kind of what he worked in. And then Abel offers uh, the firstborn of his flock and some fat portions. Now, so they both offer gifts and God regards Abel's gift. He's basically like, that's the gift I like. Now, Cain is jealous. He's angry. He doesn't like that that happened. And so he ends up killing Abel, right? So, the biblical thread from, from Genesis chapter four, where this happens in Psalm 51, we're reading today, is that there are gifts that God accepts and there are gifts that he doesn't, right? And so my question is, well, what made God enjoy Abel's gift more than Cain's or in light of it? In my argument, there's lots of different beliefs on this or reasons, but my belief is that it was because Abel actually sacrificed, like there was a sacrifice that was made. He, he didn't, it wasn't just out of his abundance or whatever. And so he says, the firstborn of the flock versus just fruit. The firstborn means before you feed yourself, before you feed anybody else, your family. He's like, I'm giving this to God. That's the firstborn. And then he says the fat portions that he gave, that's like the best part, right? So if you guys know the anatomy of a T-bone steak, Chris and I, again, we're a steak family, but uh, sorry for any like vegan friends in here. We love you, you know, uh, but uh, um but a T-bone steak is split on the T and on the right side, or you're looking at it like this, if I'm looking at it, is the New York strip, which is great too, but on the left side is the filet mignon. And that's tender and it's juicy or whatever. And so when little Eden, little Miss Two-and-a-half-year-old wants steak, guess what side of my T-bone I'm cutting for her? The New York strip, okay? She's not touching my filet mignon, all right? That's mine and I, you know, this whole thing. And that's what David's saying, or uh, that's what uh, Abel did is he gave God the filet mignon. I'll give you my fat portions. I'll give you the best. Versus Cain, it just says, it doesn't even explain much. I just gave you fruit from the ground. It's just like, it, doesn't, it seems like his sacrifice or his gift was void of a sacrifice. And God says, I, I, I want you not to give out of your abundance, but the first fruits, right? And so can I just ask you, when you consider the gifts that you've been giving God, whatever they may be, are they sacrificial? Is sacrifice 
marking the proverbial gifts that you give God. We could just talk about giving for a second. I know it's kind of weird talking about money or finances or whatever in church, but the way God set up his church is that his local church and his global church is supported by the big church, all culminating together. We'll, we'll see this in the book of Acts, but is to say, um, we want to support uh, missionaries. We want to support the advancement of the gospel for people to do it. So it's kind of, we're all in this together, me, you, and we're all saying we want to invest not into this world, but into eternity, into real lives being changed. And so you think about that and go, this is the way he set it up. And you, and you wonder, like, I think the average Christian inve- investment into like the local church or global church or giving or whatever is like one to 2%. Now, City Light, we're not like, we don't, we've never taught on the tithe. I'm not really convinced that's a New Testament idea. Um, if anything, it would get more intense in the New Testament. If we're like, oh, Old Testament, they tithe. Well, they also said, don't murder. And what's Jesus say? don't hate someone. Well, the Old Testament said, don't commit adultery. What's Jesus say? Don't even look at a woman wrong. So it intensifies the command. I'm thinking if giving was 10%, it could be holistically different. And 2 Corinthians 9 just says, give with a generous heart, you know? So take the percentage out of it. What's generous? What's sacrificial? And I think for Christian and I, we, as our, you know, journey for generosity has continued. And it's weird talking about giving or money or whatever, but we've kind of pressed in God. I don't think the 10% is necessarily sacrificial for our family. So we've continued to press in go, God, what are ways we can continue to give? And so we've pressed into that. But at the same time, I wrestle with knowing we've got a great home. We've got great cars. We can go on vacation. Like, is our giving really a sacrifice? Like, and maybe, maybe it is. Maybe we wouldn't have to budget as tightly, or maybe we wouldn't have to worry about sending Gracie to a certain school or whatever. But like, there's spaces where I'm just asking of something I'm giving God is this Cain or is this Abel? Like, is this the first of everything? Am I giving generously? Am I sacrificing? Can I say that I'm really, my lifestyle is inhibited because I'm giving, you know? Be a question for you to, to introspect yourself or think about time with God. Like, I think that's a gift we offer him to spending quality time with him. And as we sort through that space, it's like some of you guys in props to you, this is not me, wake up early, you hop on your Peloton, you got your favorite trainer, you're loving it, you're getting your little sweat on, you know, the whole thing. Or some of you are like, I'm going CrossFit, you know, like, oh, you know, like I'm, str- I don't know, it's CrossFit, I've never done it, but it sounds fun. But uh but you guys are crossfitting and whatever it is, I'm gonna go on a run or whatever. Or at night, so you wake up early. Or at night, you're like, oh, Stranger Things just came out. I need to watch the last season or Oppenheimer or Barbie and I'm gonna go to the midnight showing. You're like, we just stay up late to watch TV or I need to play board games with my friends. And it's like, but I'm not gonna wake up early for Jesus. I'm going to try and fit, if, can I figure out 15 minutes in like the middle of my day, maybe the end of my lunch break to kind of fit that time in or prayer, maybe on my drive home. I'm not going to stay up late. I'm too tired to spend time with God. I'm not going to wake up early. I got this. And it's like, you think about that. Is it a sacrifice? Am I literally, is my life kind of compromised my schedule because I'm trying to allocate? That's the idea. David could have had it for free. And he says, I'm not going to sacrifice that which isn't a sacrifice. I want this to cost me something. What could that look like in your life? The third reason I think God says I don't delight in sacrifices is because they were actions without affections. In Hosea chapter 6, 6, God says, I desire love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So I just want to be clear. God is looking for worshipers, not workers. You want the evidence? What's the greatest commandment? What's Jesus say? It all culminates down to not making disciples, not evangelizing the world, not, you know, reading your Bible, not whatever, not any activity. The main biggest, greatest commandment is what? To love God. Not to work for God, not to stay busy for God, not to do things for God, but to enjoy him, to love him, to experience his love for you. And it feels like we can get those things so twisted and we're like, I'm just doing stuff for God, but I'm not really enjoying him. Actions without affections. 
maybe think about your Bible reading. If you're committed, if you're reading the Bible and like, what are your prayer? Are you doing it just to keep up with your rhythm, just to keep up with the Bible reading plan? Or are you like, I love God and I love spending time with him. That's what he's trying to draw out. People in David's time were busy going through the motions of sacrifices, but they were never stopping to realize what's happening. Someone else is paying for my sin and that would change. This is not just my action, it's my real affection. My heart is in this, I love you, God. And isn't it beautiful that he is not like an effective manager wanting more out of us, but he's just a loving father that wants to be enjoyed and to enjoy us. It's amazing. So the question becomes, we know what he doesn't want. Well, what does he want? And verse 17 explains that. He says, so the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. So you want to know what God enjoys? Broken spirit, contrite heart. Well, broken means to shatter or to smash and contrite means to be crushed. Okay, so they're not like this like pretty easy, nice, neat language. And so you ask the question, well, then what, what shatters a spirit and what crushes a heart? And I'd argue there's really three movements to this. And David shows this, of how to get to this through Psalm 51. And so uh, the first one uh, aspect of a broken or contrite heart is realizing who you've sinned against. In verse four, what's David say? Against you and you only have I sinned. So he realizes, who have I sinned against? God. Yes, I've sinned against Bathsheba. I've ultimately sinned against God. And so I think there's two aspects as you think about who we've sinned against. Number one is that he's infinitely holy. Um, uh, You could just read, you can jot on your notes, read Isaiah chapter six, and then go read Revelation 4. They're depictions of the throne room, of God's glory. And in both of these, there's these seraphim, these big angelic beings, and they've got like different heads and they've got eyes and they got wings. I mean, like if they came in this room, we would all just fall on the ground. Like it would just, we just, maybe some of us would die. Like it's like that crazy looking, be like, oh my gosh, this is not good. And yet Isaiah 6 says there's these angels that again uh, have never sinned. They're in eternity with God right now in heaven and they're never sin, and yet they have these wings that are covering their eyes from his holiness. And Revelation 4 says they just, as they're they're going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and is and is to come. And they just keep singing. They never stop singing those words. They never, and they're covering their eyes because he's so holy. And I'm going, wait, wait, wait. If that's what they're doing, angelic beings have never sinned, how, how should I react to the holiness of God? Like the God who literally breathed and the sun fell out of his mouth into the sky and the cosmos and the billions of universes created. And that's the God I'm sinning against. It's holy and could just snap his fingers and I'm dead and all of us are. Like that holy God is the God I'm sinning against. Not any of you, not whatever, but the real holy God of the universe. Not only is he holy, but he's also kind. And when I think about who I'm sinning against, it's helpful to know he's holy, but it's even more compelling sometimes to think of his kindness. Romans 2 says that his kindness is what leads us to repentance. And it's heartbreaking to think, I'm sinning against this God over and over and over again. And what's he do in return to me? Kindness. I'm rebelling and I'm doing the things I promised I'd never do again. And what's he do to me? I love you, son. So proud of you, for you. I sin and I and I, tri- I trip up and I I give in. I'm like, oh gosh, what am I doing? You're you're my favorite. And it's just like, how can we keep sinning against a God who's so kind, you know? And you look at that and it's like, I want to experience your kindness and be shaped by it and changed by it. So I think if you want a broken spirit, I think the first aspect that crushes that spirit is by realizing who you've sinned against. The second thing is realizing what your sin actually is. 
In verse three, David does this. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So David knew what his sin actually is. And I think there's two aspects to this. Number one is sin is a tragic exchange of eternal goodness for temporary relief. Like think about it. Any sin we commit, any sin we're tempted in is a a tragic exchange to say there are billions of years ahead of me. Like this is not it. This life is not it. There's billions of years either with God in pleasure in eternity or uh, being punished by him in his wrath to pay for my sins. Like, and they're dictated not by our actions, but by Jesus, right? And trust in him. But nonetheless, that's what's ahead of us. That's where we're going to be. Every single one of us in 200 years will be in eternity in one of those spots. And yet every sin we have is exchanging that for this. Like this one little slice of temporary relief, it made me feel better. I was relieved. It felt good, like whatever. And all of it is saying, I'm forgetting all of that. And I'm living in light of this one moment in this one day. That's what sin is. It's, it's ridiculous. And then not only is it a tragic exchange, it's a foolish choice this is the second thing about sin, to worship the created rather than the creator. So this is going to sound super weird, but I think it was really compelling for me the other week. I was talking with one of my friends about sin and, and at the core, sin is really idolatry. Like it's just worshiping something else other than God. It's, and, and worship is just, my life is oriented around, God is no longer the sun that my life is oriented around. It's, it's, uh, it's this thing. It's this job. It's this house. It's this whatever. So that's what sin is. It's making this thing a God that isn't God. And, and we were talking about how, how crazy it is, but to think about this, and it, this sounds super weird, right? So like, but just, just track with me. If it's like, man, I feel like I'm really worshiping my house, like the projects that I'm doing on it or the, the improvements or the neighborhood or the lawn or whatever it is, literally for you tonight to go home, to stand on your front porch and look at this house that you've been worshiping and get down on your hands and knees and actually worship it, like to bow down to it, like you're worshiping it. Or, or you think about my car or my, just bow down in front of it or my job, get to your office and bow down and worship it or your kids, which is delicate for me. Like I'm crazy about my kids. And I'm like, I think I treat them like God sometimes. And tonight when I lay out dinner for them to get this, when they're sitting there just to get down on my hands and knees and to bow to them like they are God. Do you see how crazy that is? And yet that's what we are spiritually doing. Every time we sin, we're worshiping something else. I think a broken heart realizes what sin actually is. And the third aspect of a contrite or broken heart is realizing how your sin was paid for. And so that's what David says in verse seven. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. The whole idea connected to hyssop is blood. It's what was used to smear the blood for the Passover. It's what the priest would shake over to cleanse a leper. It's what was used to inaugurate the covenant and the promise. Like it's all about blood. So he's foreshadowing that there's gonna be blood spilt to pay for my sin, right? Like, and, and again, just to make this note, there was no sacrifice for murder that would, they would give it. There was no sacrifice for this. So it's like, you literally can't sacrifice your way out of this sin. And David's saying, someone else needs to pay for this. So David realizes. And I think there's two aspects to how our sin is paid for. Number one is that the father gave his son. Um, my son Haddon is four years old. I'm crazy about him. He's the sweetest, cutest little kid. He came in last night at like 4 a.m. and walked in and said, mommy, are there monsters? And Kristen's like, no. And he's like, okay. And he turns back and he lays down. I'm like, he's the cutest little kid ever. But you can imagine, I said, hey, Haddon, tonight, or right after church today, he's downstairs right now in the kids' ministry. And I said, hey, let's go. I'm, we're gonna go down to Kansas City. There's a federal prison down there. And we road trip down, we get down there and we walk in, we talk to the warden. I said, hey, I've got, I've got a request. 
what is it? This is my son Haddon. He's four years old. He's a sweet kid. He's never done anything wrong. He's got a totally clean record. I want to ask if there's any way to trade him. I'll give you him and this whole block of everyone that's in prison for life. Will you release them? If I give, you want to make that, this is what the gospel is. That's what the whole, whole Christianity is, is the father saying, here's my son. Here's my innocent, beloved, perfect son in exchange for rebels that he looked to me and you and all of our crimes and all of our sin and said, I want them so bad that I'll give my son for them. That's the gospel. You have to realize how your sin's paid for. It's by the father giving the son. And the gospel is also the son giving his life. Jesus says, no one takes my life. I lay it down. Jesus says, I could call angels down right now. It's like the nails weren't holding him up on the cross, right? Like it was his will to give himself for you and I. And he knew there was no other way but for him to drink the cup of wrath. And so your, the payment of your sin wasn't general of like, I'll just pay for the sin. It was specific. Like every single one had to be paid for past, present, and future. And so every time we're thinking about sinning, I have to think to myself, Jesus paid for this. Or if I choose to sin, he did. He chose to pay for that. Like that's wild to me. So that's the whole kind of aspect of, I think this is what a broken and contrite heart looks like, is realizing um, uh, who I've sinned against and, and what my sin is and how it got paid for. And it just starts to crush your spirit and realize, oh my gosh. But my question becomes, if none of that works, right? Um, and I don't think it does innately, by the way, to just make a contrite heart. The question, last one becomes, how do I get a broken heart? If that's what God wants, how do I get this contrite, humble, smashed heart? Now, if you look in verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So what's he asking for in verse 10? A heart and a spirit. What's he saying God wants in verse 17? A heart and a spirit. And how do you get those in verse 10? Create in me. That's the word borrow, that God does it. So he's saying the idea here is that the broken spirit and contrite heart that God is asking you of, he's the only one that can give it to you. It's like when I was little, I used to ask my dad for money to go buy him a Christmas gift, you know? And he gave me, you know, it's like this idea of God's giving us the gift to actually go back and offer it back to him. And so um, how do we get what God wants? We have to ask. We have to admit, I can't change my heart. I can't make it contrite. I can't make it broken. He has to create it. You can't muster up enough strength to break your heart. It's too resilient. It's too strong for that. So here's my question. What do you do when you just don't feel bad about sin? And if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, this is a matter of fact, anybody in the room, you know that you don't feel bad about sin always. Like there's spaces where I feel like it's a daily wrestle where I'm going, I know that's bad. Like I'm a pastor, I'm a dad, I'm a husband. Like I know that I shouldn't do this or whatever. And I'm just like, I just don't even feel bad about it. And I'm going, why is that? You know, and what do I do? I want to feel the weight of that. And um, well, again, I think it's go back to the elements who have I sinned against? He's infinitely holy, infinitely kind. Um, what is my sin? It's a tragic exchange and a foolish choice. How did my sin get paid for? The father gave his son and the son gave his life. But ultimately, the only way to get to a broken spirit and a contrite heart is to ask God. In John 16, Jesus says the spirit, the Holy Spirit, he is the convictor of sin. That's part of his role. He's the one that can convict you of sin. In other words, the spirit holds the sledgehammer to smash your heart and he holds the chisel to chip away all that callous of all the seared conscience you have or the hard-heartedness. He has what takes to break right through it. But I wanna point out how absurd it sounds to ask God to help you feel the weight of your sin. Has anyone thought about that so far as we're talking? Like, wait, wait, wait. It's like saying, hey, I want surgery and don't give me any anesthesia. What would compel anyone to do that? I would argue that 
the thing that would compel someone to ask God to break their heart is the knowledge that he's going to heal it. The thing that would compel someone to ask God to show them their sin is to have confidence that he's going to take it away. Like this is the great paradox of Christianity is that in the moment you realize how dirty you are, you look up and see God looking at you as if you're the cleanest thing he's ever created. And by the way, that's not just in salvation. That's in God sustaining you through your whole Christian life. Like me now going, oh, I'm so dirtied from my sin. You know, 10, 15 years into walking with Jesus and I look up, I'm so, so and he's looking at me going, oh, I'm crazy. About and to see that face of affection and approval, and his face shines upon me because of the gospel. That's, that's it, you know? Charles Simeon said, when you're so vile in your own eyes that you blush and are confounded before God and dare not even lift up your eyes into heaven, God looks upon you with such pleasure and acknowledges you as his dearly beloved child. But I want to end with the gospel and as explicit as I can say, and the point of this is not to figure out, the whole point of it isn't like, oh, I know what to sacrifice to God. I know the sacrifices he like. The point of the whole gospel is that God was the first and last sacrifice. Do you guys know where the first sacrifice happened? Who, who, who made the sacrifice and what it was for? It's in Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve sinned. God promised if you eat this, you're gonna die. And they end up eating and not dying. And then they cover themselves with fig leaves. And what's God do? He clothes them with animal skins. What did he have to do to close him with animal skins? He had to sacrifice an animal, an innocent animal that didn't do anything wrong. And he shed blood to cover his people and to cover him. And that animal died rather than them. That's the first sacrifice in Eden. You know what the last sacrifice is? It was on Calvary. Jesus comes. See, the problem with the sacrificial system is you have to keep sacrificing. It's this constant cycle of, I sinned, I need to sacrifice. I sinned, I need to sacrifice. I sinned, I need to sacrifice over and over and over again. And Jesus said, it's done. Hebrews says he gave his sacrifice once and for all, an all-sufficient sacrifice for every sin, past, present, future, for anyone across every single people group in the world that he would do that kind of extravagant sacrifice. And Jesus sacrifices himself. So to know the gospel is that God made the first sacrifice and the last sacrifice. And that every sacrifice we could ever give him is only in response to the sacrifice he's given us. Every gift we could ever offer him is in response to the gifts he's offered us through his son, Jesus. Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Austin Edwards from City Light Lincoln. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.